Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Crash Course, a podcast about business, political, and social disruption, and what we can learn from it. I'm Tim O'Brien. Today's Crash Course, winemaking versus Mother Nature. I'm in one of the world's most spectacular wine regions, the Stellenbosch, outside of Cape Town, South Africa. And I'm at one of the area's oldest vineyards, Roostenbreda. I'm meeting with the owner, John Engelbrecht. Winemaking may seem entirely glamorous, but it's really just another version of farming. It's hard, unpredictable work. And farmers everywhere are wrestling with the onslaught of climate change. Climate change may make some of the world's most fertile wine regions, from the US, South America, and Europe, to Australia and South Africa, inhospitable to grape production. The devastation can come in the form of drought, fires, or early frosts that wipe out harvests. Wine grapes require very specific conditions to grow. Too hot, no growth, and the flavor of the grapes, and thus the wine, is altered. Less acidity and more alcohol. Plunging temperatures can freeze most grapes, making them unharvestable. Fires obviously taint grapes. You taste the ash. Winemaking was a competitive and unpredictable business long before climate change's escalating challenges arrived. Bottling great wine requires as much art as science. John and Roost and Brita have success and experience on their side. While a long drought in South Africa recently sideswiped many of John's local competitors, his vineyard was spared. Robust rainfalls plumped some of his recent harvests. Still, the challenges are apparent and he's taking a wait and see approach to decide how he'll respond. Hi, John. Hi, good morning. So tell me exactly where we are right now and what we're looking at. We are standing to the, at the entrance to the winery, and all the buildings here are basically in a straight line. From the oldest one, which was built in 1780, to the new winery where we're standing in front now. So it's kind of a, a very concentrated area, and then we're surrounded by our vineyards, and we go straight up to the mountain where the property ends. Unfortunately, I came here on a rainy day. Even on a rainy and cloudy day, it is spectacular around here. There are rolling hills covered in trees and forests. The sky, even gray, is beautiful. There's a nice breeze blowing, but we might get a little bit soaking wet today as we walk around, right? We could. It's winter, and the rain is very good for us now, although I'm more a summer person. And because of the low overcast, we can't see the mountains, but we're totally surrounded by mountains. And then we got both oceans as we look to the west. we got the Indian Ocean and then the Atlantic Ocean where you just came from this morning. And we are in early winter now because we're in South Africa. So your growing and your harvesting season are different than what they are in, in the U.S. or in Western Europe, correct? Yes, we're part of the Southern Hemisphere. So we've done the 2023 harvest. We finished just after Easter weekend. And now we're basically preparing to start pruning again in the winter. And when you harvest in the Northern Hemisphere, which is around about August, September, we're just coming out of our winter, so it's quite interesting. So I'm going to ask you to give me a tutorial today, and I'd like to set the tutorial 
around the most important thing on this property, which is grapes and the grapevines. So I thought maybe we could walk into the vineyard and talk about what we see there. Let's do that. So right. we're on our way. Let's go for a walk. <laughs> this is spectacular. We're walking toward the vineyard right now, and it's set on some gently sloping land. And there's these long, spectacular alleyways of vines stretching across this hill right here. And it couldn't be more beautiful. The trees and everything is losing its leaves. And the color in the garden is all gone, right? ranges. So it's a time of the year which says this is the end of the season. Does that always feel sort of poignant to you, that time it of does. year? It's not the prettiest time of the year, but come spring, it's beautiful. And then summer is obviously fantastic. Yeah. But you need to go through the seasons. Because it's like life almost, isn't it? Yeah. So we're looking at vines, yep. wine vines. How deep do they grow into the ground here? A healthy vine needs to send its roots as deep as possible. So we have, on the mountain slopes here, we have a deep red soil with decomposed granite below, which is very good for red varietals. That's how we got to the two varietals that we do, which is Cabernet and, and, and Shiraz. And granite is good because it drains yes. from the bottom of the vine, yes. right? Yes. So you need to get the roots down as far as possible because all the nutrients are down there. And when it's these very dry summers that we can get and hot summers, there's enough moisture for the roots to bring up from deep down. If you have roots that's very shallow, that influence has a negative influence on the vine itself. When the root doesn't go down, it means it's too compacted. That's from driving too much in the vineyard. So we try and limit machinery in the vineyards. The other thing about vines that I find interesting, you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, you want them to fight a little bit for survival. Don't you want a vine to sort of prove itself against nature and be a survivor, and some of that will be reflected in the grapes that grow on its branches? Correct. When the vine is young, that first year that you plant it, it's like a baby. You've got to really nurture it, and then you don't want it to stress, because if it stresses then, it will struggle through its whole adult life. It's like taking a lamb from a sheep or a calf from a cow. If the mother doesn't have enough milk in the beginning, the calf or the lamb never becomes a high-quality animal in its adult years. And a vine is no different. At least that first year, year and a half, you really got to look after it like a baby. But from there on, yes, we have very vigorous growth here because of the soils we have. So you want to stem it a little bit. You don't want to then give it dessert all the time. There's a fine line of making sure that it fights for itself because then it creates a grape that is very concentrated, a well-formed grape, a final product that comes into the winery. If you just help it artificially and you can make it grow and give all the water that it wants, it's like all these health products that they drink, you know, the 2% milk and stuff. I mean, it looks like it, but it's not real stuff. And this touches on something you and I were talking about earlier which is your world and your business is about both science and art and that your own taste and judgments about what makes a good grape and then what to do with that grape once you pluck it from the vine can be very subjective. And that's one of the challenges and unusual features of the life you have here as a, a vineyard owner. Yes, I mean, you cannot discard science and later I'll tell you about the replanting programs we have and how science has changed just from when I was a kid to where I'm now, and how you adapt to it and how you use it. But 
for a vineyard, you really got to spend time in a vineyard to really just understand that specific property. And any winemaker will tell you that you can't move into a totally new area property and in the first year you think you're going to know it. I think it takes you at least 10 years to understand what that property and that vines give you. Because you have to know your terroir, your land. Yes, yes. You have to know your temperatures. Yes. You have to know your air quality. You have to know what the sun's going to do. You have to know what time of the day it's going to be cool and what time of the day it's going to be hot. And all those factors vary from property to property, right? So there's guidelines that you have to follow, but they're not the same for every property. And then, I mean, I'm talking about properties here. I'm not even talking about regions or countries. You've got to understand that soil. You've got to understand those vines. So for me, I concentrate on our property. It's too difficult to become an authority on everybody else's property. It's very interesting to learn, to see what other people are doing, but you've got to see whether it works on your property. So what we want to do here is I want to make sure that we can make the best wine that this property can give. And this property has a wonderful history. Tell me how old Rustenbrida is as a, a location, and then just tell me a little bit about your own family's connection to it. Well, the first title deed that hangs in my office of this property is dated 12th of March, 1694. (laughs) And then it had many, many owners over the years. And my family bought the property in 1977. And then we've been here ever since. What inspired it was your father who bought the property in 1977. And he was in another profession at the time, right? Was sort of an aficionado of wine, but had made his living as a rugby player prior to that? Well, he... (laughs) Those days, I didn't get paid much as a rugby player, but he was a grape farmer, and like his father and his grandfather. So they were all grape farmers, but my dad was the first winemaker in the family, and he wanted to make wine, and he wanted to do it at an old historic property. Why? Why did he want to make wine, and why did he want to do it in a place like this? Well, I, th- I think his love for wine happened when, you know, during his rugby playing years, when they traveled and especially in France, he got exposed to the wines of the world playing rugby. And I think that intrigued him and he studied winemaking. And then if you're in the Cape and you want to make wine, making it an historic property is special. I would say that's the number one on the bucket list. And so you inherited his love of wine. Did you know you were going to go into winemaking? Yes. I like the business. I like the vineyard side of things. I like the business side of things. What, what do you like about it? Being outside? Even outside in the rain. I think listeners can hear the rain hitting our umbrellas here. But be specific about that. What intrigued you? Did you know when you were 12 that you were going to become a winemaker? I knew I liked the business from, yes, from, from high school days. And I knew I wanted to come back to the business. And I think what intrigued me a lot is it's always a challenge. Every year is different. You know, when you grow up, you're scared of doing something that will bore you eventually. And... I've been in the business now for a long time, and there's not one day that I said, oh, you know, I want to do something else. No. You're not bored of it, and you're not ready to give it up? No. Why not? Because I get a hell of a lot of satisfaction from it. I think the fact that you constantly measure yourself at an international standard, because you have to sell wine in other countries, everything remains a challenge, but a challenge in a positive way. And I like expanding the business. I like to see what's new. The challenge is to always be relevant in terms of what the international palates want without losing your whole DNA, without changing it. And the thing about wine, you don't drink the same wine every day. Nobody does. Nobody should. 
It's like reading books. The more different books you read, the better for you. And wine is the same. I encourage people to drink different wines. And there's wines that you won't like. That doesn't mean they're bad. They're just not for your taste. It's like food. But life is too short to try all the good wines out there. So I'm giving it a hell of a go. But <laughs> I envy you. One of the other little factoids I love about your vineyard is when Nelson Mandela won a, a Nobel Peace Prize, he requested that wines from this vineyard be served at the celebration, right? Yes. He was familiar with the property. He did visit my parents a year, and he brought guests one day for a lunch. He brought the king and queen of Denmark, and they had lunch in our home. And one of the years when he was still president, he awarded us the Export Achievement Award for South African business. So he was familiar with the wine, and I think when he was asked to pick a wine to be served at the Nobel Peace Prize dinner, he kindly picked one of our wines, which was very nice. So on that happy little note, John, I want to take a break, and I want you to walk me to another part of your property. We're going to hear from our sponsor and come right back to our audience. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You see that? That's the house I live in now. Anyway, I'm going to show you what it looks like now. But this is very much how it looked when we bought, when my parents bought the property. All these photos. We're back with John Engelbrecht, and we are in a slightly much warmer and much drier part of his spectacular location here at Rusten Brida. We've been talking about winemaking and growing grapes. I want to talk to you a little bit now about the business. How has wine growing and wine making changed over the last couple of decades that you've been in the business here in South Africa? It's changed a lot. If I can take you through the steps and how we get to the bottle, when you prepare soil or a land to plant, the way that you do preparation now has changed in the last 30 years tremendously. And all these are based on the improvements of science. So soil preparation, rootstock selection, rootstock has improved throughout the entire wine growing world, once again also based on science. Then 
Winemaking, vineyard management has changed. I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of canopy management and letting sun onto the, the bunches. And when we talk about canopy management, we're talking about leaves, technically, right? Yes. The leaves on the vine. Yeah. And the canopy is actually the shade that the leaves provide for the grapes, so they're protected from the sun, or am I oversimplifying? No, no you're absolutely, absolutely correct. And if I just stand still there for a minute, is we used to, vineyards you would plant normally by the lay of the land. So in order to minimize erosion and the way that your rows go, you want to have longer rows because then you don't have to have short rows with lots of end of road turning with tractors and stuff. So where we are in our area, the rows would normally be a north-south direction. And you'll have morning sun on the one side of the vine and afternoon sun on the other end of the vine after lunchtime. We on this property have changed that completely based on what we could see when we did the experiments. Our rows now go east-west, so we have the sun on the top of the row all day, so that influences how we do the canopy management. And I'm not saying everybody must do that, I'm just saying for us it has worked in a positive way. And it works in a positive way for you because of the quality and the type of grape you're able to grow under those circumstances? Yes, and then ultimately by the wine you make from it. So that's in part of vineyard management. In terms of making wine, technology has improved tremendously in the cellar. Machinery that works much softer with wines. Barrel maturation is most probably the segment that has improved the most. How to use wood on wine, not to overwood it, to have just the exact amount of wood on the wine so it integrates well so the one doesn't overpower the other one and that has all come with time and in some cases even stainless steel the thoughts about you know aging wine and stainless steel vats versus french oak or other types of wood there's been a lot of learning over the last few decades about obviously how the vessel that you ferment your wine in affects its flavor its body what you end up putting in the bottle right correct If I look at 20 years ago, we didn't have that. We didn't have the knowledge. We didn't have the technology. That has improved. And you've got to stay on top of all the improvements in all these segments that I've just named. You can't just pick one and say, you know what, we're only going to do it in the winery. We're only going to have the best technology in the winery and we're going to focus on wood maturation and how we do it. But you don't do anything in your vineyard management or you don't select the correct rootstock for your property or your soil preparation is not done in the most beneficial for us. You have to address all those segments all at the same time and see what's happening and then put it together and then you will only see the result. You won't see the result in doing only one thing. And essentially what you're doing is you're in an elaborate dance with Mother Nature every step of the way, right? Yes, but she's the lead dancer. (laughs) And we're going to get more into that because she's become the lead dancer for us across the globe in many different ways. Tell me about any insights your father had about the business and ways he wanted to modernize it, or maybe he didn't, and then steps you took to modernize it that maybe he hadn't. I think if you look at my dad's era, he was very much on the forefront of modernizing in his time. The way that he built the new winery with the underground areas was a first in South Africa. And when we When the international community opened up, he was very quick to go overseas. I think it's because he was well-traveled 
throughout his entire life on a personal level, but also when he played rugby all over the world. So he had a lot of connections and he knew a lot of people. And in European countries, he was also known because of rugby and he made friends in wine business. So that helped us a lot. When I came on board, I specifically wanted to venture into the North American market, which he didn't do. And because I found previously when I just visited the U.S., I think we as a nation and the American people as a nation are very similar. We're more informal. We like open spaces. We like to drive where we want to go. We like to eat well. There's a lot of points that we as two different nations share, and I like that about the Americans. And of course, people speak English there, which helps a lot. So I wanted to explore that as a market for me to sell wine in. And when I started there, I started going there three, four times a year to sell wine in. And it was a long, slow journey. But if you team up with the right importers and you get to know people over time, it takes you a good 15 years or so. And then it's all been worthwhile. It's a very loyal market. And I like just spending time there. Tell me a little bit about how the South African wine industry has developed in recent years and how it's positioned against some of the other great wine regions of the world right now. Obviously, you know, Western Europe, Western United States, Australia now. How do you see South Africa and its wine business fitting into that particular puzzle? I think South Africa has an important role to play in the international wine business because of the wine that we produce. Our wine regions span quite a large area, and they're all different. When we started with a new political dispensation in 1994, the world markets, for the first time, really opened up for South African wines. And when you say political dispensation, we're talking about the end of the apartheid era. And during the apartheid era, South Africa had been isolated from the global community in a number of ways, politically, financially, etc. 1994, Nelson Mandela comes to power. And a new era begins here yes, that the country's still wrestling with. But for someone like you in the wine business, new opportunities opened up as South Africa reopened to the world, right? Correct. When the wine markets of the world opened up in 1994, we had a whole honeymoon period for at least five years where everybody wanted to try South African wines and everybody bought into supporting South African wines. And it was, it was a really a very positive era for us. But very soon... The wine world realized South African wines at that stage has fallen behind what the international audiences were looking for in wine. And that was partly or mainly due to the fact that we have been isolated. At that time, we made wine only for ourselves, for our own shows. So you get a little bit of tunnel vision. You think you're doing great wines, but you've got nothing internationally to compare it with. What happened then is, fortunately... There was a whole new generation of winemakers that started coming through. They were well-traveled, and they kept on traveling, and they learned. And we actually had a very quick turnaround, you know, eight years or so. We turned the quality of South African wines around. And then the world realized, but there's actually some good wine coming from South Africa. And we're constantly looking for market share. Europe is traditionally a strong market for South African wines. North America came late. South African wine started working there late. We started working there in a very early stage, and I enjoy working in North America, I think, because the people, the wine lovers in North America view wine in a less formal way than in Europe, and that's the way I grew up with wine, is wine is just part of your lifestyle and part of what's in your house and part of your diet, your daily diet. 
if we fast forward to where we are in 2023, we as an industry have tremendous challenges in cementing a stronger presence on the international market. It's extremely expensive for South African producers to compete in the international market as we as an industry, unlike any other industry in any other wine producing country, we don't get any, but any government support on competing. If you look at what Australia has done where they linked wine and tourism together, it has worked for them in a wonderful way. If you look at what happened in California, they did the same thing. Canada came late to the party compared to California, but their wine tourism is actually growing as well. France, Italy, Spain, South Americans, they've all been at it for much longer than what we have, but they do get governmental support. When you compete overseas, you're not apples with apples. For many producers, it's very, very expensive to do that. And I think that is detrimental to us having the footprint that we should be having on the international stage. What percentage of the global wine industry does the South African market account for now? It's very small. In terms of production, I think we're seventh in the world by volume. But I can't tell you now what percentage of the markets we have right now. We've talked a lot this morning about the art of growing a vine, the part of your business that's really about farming. When you look at the business side of what you do and what's front of mind for you right now, what are the highlights as you look across the present landscape of what you're trying to do to remain competitive and innovative? I think one of the most important foundations we have in growing us internationally is the influx of tourism to South Africa, especially after the pandemic. We've seen tourist levels in the last two years that have surpassed pre-pandemic levels. Earlier this morning, you and I spoke about just the influx of North American tourists. And if I look at the official numbers that is published by the government, the North American tourist numbers has now exceeded Europe or Britain, the UK in terms of numbers and in terms of spending. If you look at the difficulty we have in establishing a footprint overseas, but you have the strong numbers of overseas tourists coming to South Africa, what is there not to like about visiting South Africa? I mean, the the exchange rate is very much in visitors' favours. you effectively coming to a first world country. People like to know that they have connectivity. We do have load shedding at the moment. Load shedding for the uninitiated is basically rolling blackouts that South Africa has to engage in because the country's electricity supplier can't reliably produce electricity on a regular basis across the country. And so for residents in their home and business people like Jean, you have to adapt everything you're doing to the reality that every once in a while the lights are going to go out. Fortunately, I think we as a nation has proven in the past that we're very resilient when it comes to challenges. And I think the next 12 months is still going to be difficult, but we will get by this as well. If you look at the pace at which private electricity supply, I mean, we as a business, we're only one of many, but we as a business have totally gone off off the grid with solar and battery powers. and, and and, And your own generators, I assume, right? Yes, yes. We had no other choice. We had to do it. But, I mean, we're moving forward on that. We don't want to hang up a white flag and say, because of that, we can't do business. No, we addressed it and we move on. So I'm very, very positive about the next couple of years lying ahead for us, because I think 
When you look at coming back to the tourist numbers, if people were not comfortable in visiting South Africa and especially the Cape, the tourist numbers would be going down. There's other places in the world they can go to. But if I speak to tourists that visit us here at the winery, they enjoy coming here. They like what we have to offer. They come to wineries. They come to the Cape for sceneries. Then they go north for safari. And then they go home, all in one country and all at a very good value. And every one of them that goes back becomes an ambassador for our country, our wine, our food, whatever we have to offer. So in terms of that, yes, I'm positive for the future. On that note, we're going to take a slight break again, a brief break, to hear from one of our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to talk to Jean about what we referred to earlier as a dance with Mother Nature and the new dance move called climate change and how John's adapting to, to that reality as well. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I'm back with John Engelbrecht, the owner and proprietor of Roostenvrida, a spectacular vineyard in South Africa, just north of Cape Town in the Stellenbosch region. John, one of the things that made me reach out to you first is all of us are adapting to the current realities of climate change. And you're a farmer, you're a businessman, you're an artist, and you're dealing on a daily basis with forces you can't control weather being one of the primary factors in that mix. And I'd like to know how unpredictable weather and warmer weather has affected the grapes you grow and how you manage them so they can become young adults and be bottled later for people. How is climate change affecting how you do business? I think we've experienced the influence of climate change here as well as everybody else has. And it is something that gradually happens. Five years ago, we had the worst drought we had in the Cape, which is unheard of for us. And we've seen for many years our winters were shorter. They started later, so the vines doesn't go into a long enough rest period. And then suddenly, one year comes by and everything is back to normal. For example, recently you've had very healthy, robust rains, completely opposite of the drought you experienced just several yeah. years earlier. So it's not always the same playing field, obviously. No, it's not. For instance, last year, the main dams 
in our province in the Cape. It doesn't get filled by rain, it gets filled by snow that comes from the mountains that when it melts. So last year we had very, very little snow and the dams took a long time to fill up. Now we're just starting winter and last weekend we had snow on the highest mountains, which is a very, very good thing. That's far more normal. For me, I am very weary of just changing everything because I see that in other parts of the world, wine growing part, people are planting vineyards that takes less water. There's even some new or relatively unknown varietals that they're planting. I'm not there yet because I think for me, in my size of business, it will be kind of very risky to rip out varietals that I'm comfortable with that I've been producing in order to plant new things because I need to make sure what kind of wine those new varietals are going to make. So I am far more careful in just throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I don't want to do that. And as I say, for us in a microcosm here where I'm situated in the mountains and stuff, I don't think that the weather patterns that we've experienced that is out of the norm has been so severe than in other parts of the world. The interesting thing is, they had in our leading agricultural magazine in the country, they had the rainfall numbers for the last century, the last hundred years. And if you take a look at that, you would see that the droughts and the floods, they've all been there, give and take, within three, four years of each other over a century. So I'm not saying there's no climate change. I'm just saying for where I am, I'm taking a very cautious view on just changing everything because of that. We traditionally here where I'm situated, we don't irrigate a lot because if we get a normal rainfall in the winter, which touch with 99% we've had, the soil keeps enough moisture for the vines to flourish. And the runoff that we have from the mountain at the back here that runs into our own dams is enough water to supplement any irrigation if it becomes an extremely warm summer. But that is a view that I only take on my property. Do you see other competitors or colleagues in the wine business here having to take on or adopt more drastic or novel measures to deal with climate change here? Definitely. There are areas in South Africa where people, they don't have the annual rainfall on their vineyards like we have here in Stellenbosch. So they have to irrigate and they are making far more drastic measures in order to curb their water usage, which you can understand because they farm or they produce vineyards in dry areas. That is traditionally been drier. One of the other factors when I've spoken to other winemakers that has come with climate change is new varieties of insects and animals can get into vineyards and wine growers have to adopt to, you know, new predators, so to speak, going after their grapes. Have you experienced any of that here? No. No. What about some of your competitors in the region, have they? I think in this area... Animals in the vineyards is something very rare. I think in other areas, I know if you go hour and a half north, they have problems. Friends of mine who farm there with grapes and stuff, they have. But around here, in this area, in Stellenbosch, no, I'm not aware of it. So one of the things you've been explaining to me is that you haven't seen enough change in the weather patterns in your microcosmic world here at your vineyard that would compel you to change the way you're doing business because you just don't have enough information or experience about this particular change to do anything drastic that might disrupt what you have going on here, correct? For where I am, yes, I agree with that. So if it gets to a point where you have to do something drastic, then I think you will have to adapt to that. But I haven't seen anything in here where I am 
that I need to drastically change the way that we do things. Will you know when that moment arrives? What is the benchmark you use to know when you have to change? Well, I think for us, if we start having shorter and drier winters year on year on year, then that becomes a, a huge red flag. But if you have two or three dry winters or short winters and suddenly it returns to being more of a normal winter and things are back to normal, then for me, the one cancels out the other. And by no means am I saying there's no global warming. I'm just saying I must be very careful. I'm a small business just to uproot everything because it's become fashionable. And then tomorrow I might sit without a business because I'm producing a wine that nobody wants. And everybody said, well, it's tough luck that you're out of business, but you know, you did the right thing. No. You don't grow any white wine grapes on your property. You only grow red wine grapes and specifically Cabernet and Shiraz grapes. Is that right? That's correct. I do produce white wine, but not on this property. And the Cab grape is a hardy grape. It's not as finicky as like a Pinot can be. You're a hardy man. Do you feel like that Cabernet grape is a reflection of who you are too? I think Cabernet does very well where we are. We have a very Mediterranean climate right here. And Cabernet, what I've learned, always has a market. If people are not sure which red wine to drink or which red wine to buy, Cabernet comes up. So I wouldn't have it if it didn't suit well where I am. But we've seen this over the last 50 years. It does very well here. You know, in some regions where it's been heating up and where Cab is still thriving, the heat has raised the alcohol content in the grape. They're warmer on the vine and the acidity goes down and the alcohol content in the grape goes up. Have you seen any of those kind of changes in the grapes when you take them off the vine and begin to ferment them? Yes, we have. We've seen that over the last couple of years. I wouldn't actually blame it on weather. Our wines, the alcohol content has become higher than what it was 10, 15 years ago. But that is more a result of how long we let it hang to get it totally to ripeness. Also because when the California cabs came onto the market, they were very different from Bordeaux's in France. They had a much higher alcohol content. That sort of changed the market too, right? Because those wines became popular. Was that a factor on moving towards, you know, cabs that had higher alcohol content? No, I think if you farm in areas where it's traditionally warm during the summer, whether it's in California or whether it's Australia or here, the goal is to make a balanced wine. The alcohol is just a result of that balanced wine. So I get very annoyed when people start saying, you know, now they tax you if your alcohol is too high because everybody's on this health living thing. And um, I don't chase alcohol levels, but I hate to take alcohol out of the wine because you alter the DNA of the wine. If you look at what Napa has been doing, traditionally, Napa and even Australia had very high alcohol wines. But I think through the years, as soon as they started planting out of the river valley or the riverbed into the, into the hills, you saw the wines change. I mean, Napa is now making the most beautiful, elegant wines that still has relatively high alcohols. But the alcohol doesn't characterize a wine other than saying it's an high alcohol. People don't taste an high alcohol. They see it on the back label. So then they go, oh, it's a bit of a high alcohol, and we want only 12.5%. They don't know the difference. I promise you they don't know the difference until you send it to a lab. So we traditionally, between you know 13.5% and 14% alcohol, 
if you look at the wines my dad made, we were 12 and a half, 13. But during that time, we harvested mostly like France would harvest. So we harvested at a lower sugar content because that's how we had it. That's how we were taught or he was taught. The reason France doesn't harvest at a high sugar content because they can't get a higher sugar content. I mean, they can do other things to the wine, but we have sunlight, like California, like Australia, like South America, abundance of sunlight. So we want the wine, the grape to be, everything must be in balance. Then in red wine, that will lead to a higher alcohol. And then so be it. On Crash Course, we always like to ask people what they've learned along their particular journeys. And you've been in your business now, running this particular business for, for more than two decades. What do you know now that you didn't know when you first dove into this world? What have you learned along the way? I think, first of all, I stick to, my dad always said, don't make a wine we don't drink ourselves, because how do you sell that? Maybe it was said with a bit of a tongue in the cheek, but I think it's, it's been a valuable lesson for me. I've learned that I want not to change the wine-making world because I think that's maybe being a little bit out of touch. When you start out, you say, I want to make the best wine in the world. No, that ain't going to happen because it's all so different. What I can say is my goal has been and will always remain to make the best wine that we can make on this property. And if I can succeed in that, then I'll be happy. But there's no such thing as a winery saying, I want to make the best wine in the world. That's being totally aloof, I think. I think today, if you start a winery and you're just an individual, I'm not talking about being a big corporate or you're somebody that made your money somewhere else. And because for some reason, all over the world, people who have become very wealthy, they want to have a winery. There's something about it that intrigues them. And I think it's the fact that they cannot control it because I've seen that and it annoys them because they have been extremely successful in their sphere of businesses where they controlled 100% of everything every day. Now they come into a winery where Mother Nature says, this is how we're going to do it. And for the first time in their life, there's something that they cannot control. And you're not somebody who lies awake at night thinking about the things you can't control? Not at all. No. Why is that? I think it's because just the way that I've been brought up, when you work as a farmer and you work with the vineyards on a daily basis and you work with nature, you get up and you deal the best to your ability with the cards that's been given to you on that certain day. Because you can make do all the planning and everything, but if nature has other plans, you have to adapt to that. And so I cannot influence a drought. I cannot influence a flood. I cannot influence something that's totally out of our control or human control. I just need to address the issue when it's there to the best of our abilities. And that's what I'm trying to do. So therefore, I don't lose sleep over it. John, I feel like we should go somewhere and drink some wine now. You've made me thirsty. And of course, you've made me intrigued. I really appreciate you spending time with our listeners today. It's been a pleasure, Tim. And it was nice meeting you and receiving you here. And I hope it's not your last visit, not only to South Africa, but definitely to the Cape. The next time I'll come without a microphone so I can just sit and enjoy your company more. Thank you, my friend. Here at Crash Course, we believe the collisions can be messy, impressive, challenging, surprising, and always instructive. In today's Crash Course, 
I learned that if you want to be a content and happy winemaker, don't go to bed at night worried about the things you can't control. What did you learn? We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at the Bloomberg Opinion handle, at Opinion, or me, at Tim O'Brien, using the hashtag Bloomberg Crash Course. You can also subscribe to our show wherever you're listening right now and leave us a review. It helps more people find the show. This episode was produced by the indispensable Anna Mazarakis, Moses Andam, and me. Our supervising producer is Magnus Henriksen, and we had editing help from Sage Bauman, Katie Boyce, Jeff Crocott, Mike Nietzsche, and Christine Vanden Bylart. Blake Maples does our sound engineering, and our original theme song was composed by Luis Guerra. I'm Tim O'Brien. We'll be back next week with another Crash Course. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.